our Bible lessons from the first epistle of John, we consider chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where we read, Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. Or we might render, What you yourselves did hear from the beginning, in you keep on letting it be abiding. If in you should abide what from the beginning ye did hear, also ye in the Son and in the Father shall abide. And this is the promise which he himself did promise to us, the life, the eternal. How wonderful are the precious truths of the word of God. We may ask the following questions in considering the truth of these verses. First, what had the Apostle John been preaching from the beginning, in which he commands these dear listeners of his, or readers, to abide? First, we know from the Gospel of John and from the opening verses of this epistle that John had proclaimed the pre-existence and advent of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. We have from the Bible the profound fact revealed that the great Godhead, who is everywhere evident, exists in three distinct personalities, or three distinct essences of being. How wonderful is this revelation! It has the aspect of heavenly communion, which has existed forever and forever, and which shall continue to exist. And so the Apostle John, who was so near the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry, and was so faithful in abiding in the presence of the cross, and risking his own life to be faithful to his blessed Master, went forth everywhere proclaiming the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Man had departed into sin. God, in great love, has desired to reconcile man to himself. This proposed great problems. It made it necessary for a profound sacrificial death of a substitute to take place. And so John affirmed the wonderful fact that the Lord Jesus came into this world as a manifestation of love to be that substitute. Then we may be sure that John proclaimed the great commissions that the Lord Jesus had left. We have in the last verses of Matthew's Gospel the command, Go ye therefore and teach or make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. So we have the admonition that Christianity is not something shallow, something that may be quickly dispensed with, but it is a life of reconciliation to God. Then we may be sure that John proclaimed the other great commission, as recorded in the 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel, verses 46 and 47. 
and said unto them, Thus it is written, the Lord Jesus is speaking after his resurrection, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And so John, we may be sure, went forth to insist upon repentance from all sin and faith as a condition of remission. We know that John preached that to be saved was to be reconciled to God and that this was to be reconciled to the holiness of God and required a forsaking of all sin. We have this made very clear in the first chapter of the first epistle of John, where the apostle describes the great God as existing in perfect moral light. And of course, if we are going to be reconciled to God, we have to be willing to abide in the same moral light that God sheds forth upon our lives as we draw near to him. And thus, there is no salvation apart from a glorious radiating consciousness of the great God of the heavens. And who would want a lesser salvation than this? Surely, if God would permit a salvation less than this, he would not be insisting upon that wonderful relationship which is for man's own good and blessing. And so the Apostle John went on a number of times to affirm the new commandment of love, which he affirms is not new. Man being reconciled to God is to abide in this state of love toward God and toward man. Thus we have in substance what the Apostle John preached. Now, what does the Apostle John command Christians to do in this verse? He affirms that we are to keep ourselves abiding in this wonderful presence of God into which we have been introduced by reconciliation through faith in the cross and sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it is our agency that must be active in keeping us in this wonderful relationship with God. Certainly God desires a perfect and a harmonious relationship with man. And we may be sure, as is affirmed many times in the New Testament, that God is absolutely faithful in his part of our relationship. And so there's no admonition necessary in that direction, but it is we ourselves who must remain or abide in this wonderful state of love as a condition of further fellowship. And thus we have this command. We notice that it is a present command. It is something that must take place continually. It is to receive all the truth or the moral light possible and to accept its reflection upon our own lives and be willing to have our lives changed by the grace of God, realizing that the great God of love is a God of wisdom, of profoundness, of unspeakable moral beauty, of every desirable trait that we could ever conceive in the very elevated concepts of our minds. And so to abide in such a wonderful atmosphere 
is the most desirable thing in the whole universe for man. And so man must maintain this attitude of love or benevolence toward God and toward man. And he must not do this once, but he must keep on continually doing it. Now what does the apostle say results from this constant abiding in the moral light and love of God? Think of these wonderful words. Ye in the Son and in the Father shall abide. Can anything surpass these profound words when we think of the greatness of God as evidenced by scientific discoveries? and the profoundness of the love of God as manifested through the gracious sacrificial death of Christ and the many bestowals of benevolence that we are daily conscious of. How profound the thought that we mere mortals with our tiny perspectives and our isolated lives in one part of this great universe can have the experience of the presence of the great God within our hearts. Surely this is the most glorious description that has ever been put in the language of men. We read in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel and verse 23 these words, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. Here is the promise that the Lord Jesus affirms that the Father will manifest himself to our very hearts and souls when we have been reconciled to God through the atoning death of Christ and through a willingness to forsake every conscious sin that we can ever think about and to walk in the moral light of God, then here's the promise. And not only this, but the Lord Jesus also, in his glorified state, will manifest himself to us. In the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, in verse 21, we read, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The Lord Jesus in this high priestly prayer is praying for those who have forsaken their sins and who had at that time become his humble disciples and also for those who down through the ages should believe and forsake their sins and be reconciled to God through his atoning death, which considers all of us in this age of grace. And so the wonderful declaration that we may enter into such a oneness of consciousness with God that it is likened to the oneness that exists between the members of the divine trinity. Now what evaluation is placed upon such a life? We have the wonderful statement that it is the life. How conclusive, how wonderful, how profound. This is the message of the Bible and particularly of the glorious manifestations of the New Testament. The glorious life in relation with God is not a better life. It is not an improved life. It is not a life of mere joy or uh, complacency of some sort. 
But the New Testament describes it as the life, that is, the manner of existence in the presence of God and as receptive of the manifestations of God that surpasses all other possible lives in such a degree that only it is worthy to be set off as the life. It is the promised life of reconciliation to God, the apostles said, and it is the eternal life. If we are united to the great God of eternity, we have that essence of eternal life abiding in our heart. And this is what the Lord expressed in John 17:3, again in his high priestly prayer. And this is life eternal. He's defining it, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. My dear listening friend, are you a partaker of this glorious relationship with God? If you have been, are you continuing in this wonderful relationship? Our Heavenly Father, we commit these words and these promises from thy word unto the hearts of men, O oh, that many may receive them this day and may abide happily in thy sweet and loving presence. In Jesus' name, amen.